Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan and as always I will be your host for this episode. The podcast continues to grow and I appreciate all the great listeners and fans out there who have helped nurture this fledgling podcast. I have received all my promotional items for September's Crime Con in Orlando, so I'll have plenty of shirts, frisbees, can koozies, and other great things to give away to anyone stopping by my booth. If you plan on attending, drop me an email and I'll set aside a special gift for you. But let's quick cover the business side of the show before we get into today's episode. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email me directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon and PayPal. Any donation level helps and will help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand on the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout out in a future podcast and a thank you message from the host. And for no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much. And without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. General George Custer became a name synonymous with defeat. The overconfident leader of the 7th Cavalry led a malnourished and undertrained group of 700 men into a battle on June 25, 1876 in Bighorn County, Montana. Tensions were high as Native American tribes faced an ever-growing surge of non-Native settlers into their lands across the western half of the United States. The displacement of tribes from their long-standing lands often forced them onto other lands that were either designated for other tribes or had been the long-standing lands of those men, women, and children. Wars between tribes were constant and small skirmishes between the non-Native settlers and the Native Americans were common. The time period between 1854 and 1890 is referred to as the Sioux Wars in history books, although Sioux refers to a single tribe and is actually a derogatory slang name given to Dakota Lakota people by the Ojibwe, a rival tribe. It's actually a shortened version of a longer name that means little snakes. Uh, so again, if I try to refer to people as the their actual tribe name as opposed to what Europeans decided that these tribes would be named, mainly because the Europeans originally traded with the uh, Ojibwe people during the fur trade, and so they adopted the derogatory name for their for the rival tribe. But even though it was called the Sioux Wars, even that wasn't accurate. It was really a war against a lot of different uh, Native American tribes. As Native Americans were either relegated to mostly worthless land via treaties or pushed continually west, their chieftains realized they were running out of space. Encroaching on lands belonging to the Crow and Arakara in Montana, the Lakota, Dakota, Northern Cheyenne, and Arapaho tribes banded together to form an army capable of victory against the U.S. Cavalry. The Native American victory at the Battle of Little Bighorn resulted in a short-lived celebration. But within a few months, the Native American army disbanded due to lack of food in the area to sustain a large force, and the small bands that broke off were eventually forced into surrender by reinforcements sent to the area. Within a year, the last of the forces had surrendered, and while small conflicts continued for another decade, there were no large-scale battles, and by 1877, the area was deemed, quote-unquote, safe to settle. Small towns began to pop up along the Yellowstone River as steamboat travel and railroads provided easy transportation to and from the frontier. One of those small towns was Laurel, Montana. By 1882, there were 200 people living in the town of Laurel, just 15 miles southwest of Billings, Montana. A little over 100 years later, the town had grown to around 6,000 people in 1998. Like many small towns in the 1990s, there was a video rental store, a place for people to find some weekend evening entertainment. In 1998, one of the employees of that store was 18-year-old Miranda Fenner. Her murder that year shocked the small town, and her case would go unsolved for almost 20 years, until a man who had been a suspect early on finally convinced the police that he was the killer. This is the sad and strange case of the murder of Miranda Fenner. Miranda Fenner was born on 12-26-1978 in California. In 1990, when Miranda was 12, 
her parents moved the family, which consisted of her and her younger brother Tim, to Laurel, Montana. The move from Sacramento was twofold. The Fenners wanted to move out of a big city and closer to the family in the area. In 1998, Miranda was 18 years old, and she was the typical 90s teenager, feisty with a touch of rebellion. Her parents would later say that she seemed to single out difficult teens as her friends, but this was by design and Miranda loved to lift others around her up and help them get back on the right path. With a huge heart and a caring soul, she talked about working with children someday and was a huge lover of animals. During the summer of 1998, she was in a bad car accident and had broken her neck. The fracture did not result in any form of paralysis, but as part of the healing process, she was forced to wear a neck brace and was unable to leave the house for most of the summer. Once the neck brace was removed and she regained her freedom, she started looking for jobs. Options would be limited in a town of only 6,000 people. Nearby Billings, just a 20-minute drive away, could have provided more options, but without reliable transportation and being safety-conscious thanks to her parents, Miranda opted to look closer to home. She was excited when she landed a job at the local video rental store called, quote, the movie store, end quote. Although she would often work alone and sometimes had to close the store at night, Miranda would be working directly across the road from a motel that her grandparents owned and operated, and the movie store was only a short three-block walk from her home. Miranda and her parents felt it was the perfect job to keep her close to home and provide her with a little spending cash. A couple mostly quiet months went by, and then came the evening of November 15, 1998. It was a quiet Sunday evening, and Miranda, while alone on her shift and board, had called her mother and her uncle from the store and had, seem, had seemingly normal conversations with them. But at 8.20 p.m., two fishermen coming home from a weekend trip noticed something strange about the store. Someone was laying out front by the store's front door, and as they got closer, the men saw the, it was a young woman covered in blood. They ran to her and started trying to help her, and one of them called 911 from the store phone to summon first responders. Police arrived within a few minutes and were tending to the critically wounded Miranda when her brother Tim started biking from his house to rent a video game from the store and to say hi to his sister. He didn't get far from his house before he could see the flashing lights and recognized they were at the store his sister worked at, so he turned back home and notified his father that something was going on at the store. Mike Fenner drove to the store just as officers advised him that Miranda was being airlifted to a hospital in Billings, Montana. Meanwhile, Miranda's grandmother called Sherry, Miranda's mother, to tell her what was happening across the street from the motel. Mike and Sherry drove to the hospital, beating the helicopter, and waited for word on their daughter's condition. As they waited, doctors worked frantically to save Miranda's life. Despite their best efforts, Miranda succumbed to her wounds during surgery, and the small town of Laurel had a homicide to solve and a killer to find. So, I, I, again, I like getting through the entire story without too much interruption. Uh, I, we can go back through and cover a few things. Uh, obviously, this is a, a movie store, and if you didn't grow up or live uh, as an adult during the 90s, I guess, uh, these are the thing of legends that people talk about. Uh, the most common was Blockbuster. But if your city or town wasn't big enough to have a franchise movie store like a Blockbuster, uh, they often would have these smaller movie selections. I know we talked in episode one about Jacob Wetterling uh, biking to Tom Thumb with his brother and his friend to rent a movie because they didn't have school the next day. And this, again, was something pretty common in the, the 80s and 90s. Uh, these movie stores, if it was the town was too small, it often was attached to as just a section, I should say, of a gas station would have a, a video rental. Uh, sometimes you'd have uh, you know, a, a part of a strip mall uh, dedicated a, a store in the strip mall that was a video rental store. And Miranda's brother Tim is actually going to rent video games, which is another thing. Because again, this is all before the time of the internet. It's before any type of streaming, uh, any chance to digitally download a video game or stream a video game or 
stream a movie or, or digitally download a movie, people relied on these video rental stores for entertainment because your only other option was to go to some big box store like Target or Best Buy or or something along those lines. There's other ones back in the day, Circuit City, uh, some others uh, that would sell you know VHS tapes that you, that you could buy and then that own um, or as a lot of people did you could uh, record what was on TV and people would use blank VHS tapes to record a movie that was on cable or regular TV and then you know people had cabinets full of these VHS tapes with handwritten notes of which movies they had recorded or whatever it might be but but basically the staple for entertainment if you wanted to watch a newer movie if you didn't have the capability to drive and, and purchase the movie or if you didn't have the desire to you could go to these these video rental stores and they they said that she worked in the store alone she said that she had to close the store at night I would have to imagine these are a little bit safer and we'll talk about it in a bit uh, your, your customer clientele for the most part are regulars you had to have an account to rent a movie so it's not like a gas station where you've got a lot of transient traffic coming through it's for the most part it's going to be the same people renting movies you're going to know these people and so that provides a little level of safety as well but unfortunately this day this november 15th uh, miranda's working alone and the police don't know the exact time of the attack and this is because there's not going to be any security cameras again she's going to be working alone they're going to try to piece together a timeline based on uh, receipts for these video rentals and, and people coming in the store to make rentals so they're going to get a pretty good timeline off of that but again they don't have an exact time that this crime occurred and the other thing to note here, um, it was interesting that they airlifted her uh, from this location to the hospital in Billings. Again, Billings is about 15 minutes, or sorry, 15 miles away from Laurel. It's just down the Yellowstone River. It's a, it's a straight shot between the two towns. Now, the only thing I could think of is that the closest ambulance may have been in Billings. And so even at full speed with lights and siren, let's say they get there and in 10 minutes, take five minutes to load her up and then 10 minutes to get her back, that's that's 25 minutes before she's at the hospital. Uh, whereas, you know, the helicopter, it's, it's a couple minutes flight, a few minutes to load her up, but a couple minutes flight back. And I think that's why her parents actually beat the helicopter to the hospital is because they don't have to sit around and wait for an ambulance to come they're at the scene and leaving if there was an ambulance in laurel it probably would have been faster just to load her up in an ambulance and drive her there because clearly miranda's parents made it quicker than the hot and than the helicopter so my guess is it's it's something about the round trip with the ambulance was going to take longer than the round trip with the helicopter but at the end of the day, unfortunately, Miranda, uh, like I said, she passes away during surgery to try to to try to save her life. But let's go back to the crime scene now. There are going to be things that were released to the media back in 1998, and I used some of that information to formulate kind of my opinions as I'm writing this and. And I'll be the first to admit, my opinions aren't always right. Uh, I did work a lot of different crime scenes, and most of the time I was pretty accurate with what happened based on the evidence. But when I'm looking at something from the outside, it's and, and purposely things have been left out uh, of the information given to the media or to the public, it's sometimes I, I have to jump to conclusions without having the information and then I end up being wrong and in this case I'm gonna be a little bit wrong and I'm okay with that because we'll talk about uh, how that affects things later on so we go back to the crime scene and investigators started putting pieces of the puzzle together they had cash missing from the register so robbery was a potential motive but they felt there was more to the case Miranda had been stabbed and her throat had been slashed she was not found to have suffered any gunshot wounds 
or a sexual assault, and retail robbery by knife, although not completely uncommon, was much riskier, especially in Western America. So let's discuss the crime scene and what it would tell the investigators. The crime scene and wounds sustained by Miranda suggest a knife attack with robbery as part of the crime. The attack would have occurred with no people other than the suspects in the store, or suspect in the store. The crime could have involved more than one person, but likely only one person attacked Miranda. And, and again, when I say the information we have at the time, the only witness to this crime is Miranda, and, and she's since passed away. And she, it was said when the 911 callers, the fishermen, found her, she was unconscious with a weak pulse, and then it said she never regained consciousness and eventually passed away. So it's not like in the few hours before she passed away, before she went into surgery, that she had time to tell police what happened. So all they have is is the victim, the, you know, the wounds they, the victim sustained, and the crime scene and the evidence at the crime scene. And they actually believed, based on the wound uh, to Miranda's neck, that she had been shot in the neck uh, because there was just a lot of blood and a, and a really strange wound to her neck which we'll get into later as well. Uh, so at first they actually did believe it was some type of a, a gunshot wound to the neck. Uh, and, and it was really strange because in the research it said that they didn't believe that robbery was the main motive. And I kind of took a step back and said, how could you not think that robbery is the main motive? You have a you know single employee of the store who's and and there's parts of this crime scene again that weren't released to the public and so i don't want to ruin too much of it but what they did know and it, and maybe this was released or it wasn't was that she had actually crawled from the back of the store to the front while wounded uh, and i'm sure again they could follow the blood trail from the back of the store to where she crawled out the front to try to get help and so she they know the attack on her actually occurred in the back room so Again, as part of the crime scene, you have to figure one of two things. Either Miranda's up front at register, is robbed, brought to the back of the store where she's attacked, and then the suspect flees, or she was already in the back room doing something when the attack occurred and that the suspect attacked her and then grabbed cash. But there's going to be a couple things, again, not released about this crime scene until later that I think paint a better picture of what happened. Unfortunately, since we're not getting that in the beginning, again, I'm making a lot of assumptions or trying to read this crime scene by the information that was available. What we do know is a suspect or suspects, and again, we don't know if it's one or two. Sometimes robberies are conducted in pairs, but a knife attack on a person is usually a one person style attack. It doesn't mean there wasn't another person there. Again, we're just assuming that only one person actually actually physically attacked Miranda. And the, the two likely suspects in this is someone who's local and would have known Miranda was working alone, or they were from Billings and possibly more transient to nature. I'll put a disclaimer on here. I'm not trying to talk down Billings, Montana. I took a trip out to Glacier National Park a couple years ago and it was my first time driving through North Dakota and most of Montana. I'd been in Montana before just around the Yellowstone area uh, on a trip I took to Yellowstone National Park and, and the place I stayed in was just outside the park in the Montana side. So I had been in the state before but just barely, probably a few miles into Montana and then a few miles back into the park. So so barely touched more than a couple miles of the state. But on this trip out to Glacier, I wanted, it was quickest and I wanted to drive across North Dakota and then through Montana. And I had no idea that most of the eastern part of Montana and central part of Montana is pretty flat. There are some rolling hills but it's very flat like North Dakota and South Dakota. There's not a whole lot to look at. And Billings is kind of this railroad town in the middle of nowhere. 
I, I should say city, it's, it's the largest city in Montana, but it's this industrial hub is the best way to put it. And I stayed in a hotel because I drove from Minneapolis, St. Paul out to Billings in one day and I stopped at Theodore Roosevelt National Park on the way, so I, I killed some time there. But when I stayed at my hotel in Billings, I was picturing again, because I thought most of Montana was mountainous, that Billings would be in the mountains, that I'd already be enjoying some mountain scenery. And instead, my hotel was surrounded by an industrial park with semis running all hours of the night and day and and there's a big refinery in town as you as you pull in so it was it was definitely not the picturesque montana city and again i'm not saying that there aren't probably very nice places in billings or around billings or uh, some beautiful locations, uh, some nice parts of Billings. I'm sure there are. I just happen to have a hotel in the middle of this industrial park. And I recognize really quickly that Billings is kind of one of those towns that probably attracts that more transient style crowd. I mean, first off, you've got a lot of semi-truck drivers coming in and out of there uh, that are transient in nature by their job. You've got railroad workers, same thing. And then you've got kind of the blue collar workers, the mechanics, the people working in the oil refineries, uh, people working in the industrial thing, forklift operators, everything like that, that, that tend to be you know, these more trades style jobs. It just, th those types of jobs are more transient in nature. They're people that might work for a couple years in the area and then move on to a new area uh, of the country. So again, I think police had to theorize there's a chance that the murder could have occurred by somebody who was just transient to the area just because of the proximity to Billings. And this is just different than if you have a small town kind of in the middle of nowhere, Montana. I drove through plenty of those, especially on my way back through. I drove through northern Montana and there were sections of roads where I wouldn't see another person for 20 or 30 miles and just the random building here or there. If a murder occurs there, there's not a whole lot of reason for people to be transient through that area. They're, they're likely more local. So police had to balance those two things out and, and try to decide what they were dealing with. And then you also look at Miranda's life. There's no mention in any sources of a current or past a romantic relationship that may have had reason to be involved in the crime because sometimes the retail aspect of it and the fact that they didn't think that robbery was the main motive sometimes robbery or burglary is used as a cover for the main motive so if she was targeted by a jealous ex or a current uh, romantic relationship that had gone sour some type of a domestic thing uh, sometimes those suspects to distance themselves from the investigation will stage it to look like it's a robbery and try to throw the police off. So I didn't see anything in these sources about her having been involved in any type of relationship that had recently ended. You know, did make mention from her parents that she tended to make friends with more troubled people, but again there was no indication that she had any recent fights or anything like that with any of her friends. So all this stuff would likely be looked at by the police, but there was just no mention of, of that being a major part of the investigation. And it's unlikely that security video existed because there's no mention of it. And in 1998, security systems were a lot more expensive than they are now. And they required constant changing and storage of VHS tapes. And I know this is a VHS rental place, so people could say this is the one of the last places to have issues with his VHS tapes, but having worked security in the 90s, I just remember how many of these VHS tapes uh, these security systems would need. A lot of the times every, you had these things called multiplexers, and sometimes it could divide up the, the multiple cameras onto a single VHS tape, but then there's only so much storage on these VHS tapes, uh, so you had to have a lot of them, or you had to have multiple VHS tapes, one for each camera, and and again, storing these, a lot of places would just recycle the same VHS tapes. They'd have a, a Monday section of tapes, a Tuesday section of tapes, and if nothing got reported by the next Monday, you were taping over, 
And the thing with VHS is the more that you taped over them, the worse the quality got. And so within a few months of taping over these VHS tapes constantly, there's some pretty bad grainy footage, if you had footage at all. Uh, so again, nothing was mentioned about VHS tapes or security systems, so I have to imagine that this little movie store in a town of 6,000 people probably didn't have security video. And this is the 90s, so cash was still pretty popular, and it was a Sunday night with an entire weekend of revenue possibly available for the suspects. But it's also likely that a store like this would have a safe to store excess cash, and there's no mention of a safe being opened. So most places in, I mean, even to today, most retail places, they only keep a certain amount of cash in the drawers so that if they do get robbed, or overnight if there's a burglary, uh, they get hit for a limited amount uh, throughout the day or at least at the end of the, the shift before the, the retail places closed on Friday and Saturday nights, uh, they would have done what's called the drop where they would have taken out all the excess cash from the drawers and put them into a more secure location like a safe that's concreted to the floor. Uh, if, if that's the type of security they had again there was no mention of anybody trying to get into the safe so whatever they got out of the drawer was very minimal and that's maybe why they thought robbery wasn't a motive either it wasn't a very good robbery or the person didn't get a whole lot of money and no weapon was left behind and the killer would have had to bring a weapon to the store as large knives aren't readily available in a movie rental store and this is when we see sometimes these home invasion robberies or burglary gone wrong, almost everybody has large knives in their kitchen. And so sometimes the murder weapon is not something that's brought to the scene by the suspect. It's something that's used at the scene and is either left at the scene or taken and is missing. Uh, and in this case, this is a movie rental store. It's not a place where you're going to come and fashion your own weapon in order to do the robbery. You're, you're likely coming to the store with a weapon. And again, I mentioned this is quote unquote Western America. Uh, it's part of an area that's that's still considered a little wild even to this day. And, th and this is what made me think, if you were gonna rob a place, chances are you'd be bring at least a gun because there's a good chance if it was a family owned operation that there may be a gun kept behind the counter or somebody may be carrying a gun on them and if you try to rob them with a knife it's not going to go well for you but again you're not coming to this video rental store and then just deciding at the last second to rob it and finding a knife somewhere and then knife attacks as we've talked about in the past always have the possibility of suspect dna being left behind the only problem with this is this is going to be a semi-public place and I say that because yes it's public but it's also privately owned so it's not like a city park where anybody's walking in it's people are coming there with a purpose but for the most part anybody can walk into this place and so over the course of the weekend even in a small town you might have a hundred people coming in and out of this store let alone if you start adding up the week before that the weekend before that so you're going to have a lot of people traffic through the store. So finding DNA, unless it's fresh blood at the scene that you can link to the crime, is easily explained away by a defense attorney. Uh, you know, somebody played a game of baseball or softball before going to the video store, and they slid during the game and sliced up their their leg, and they might have been bleeding still when they went in the store, or. Uh, in the case of fingerprints, of course, anything that's touched in the public area, somebody's fingerprints, as long as they admit to being in the store at some point, it's not going to per se uh, link them to the crime unless it's an area that's not accessible by the public, like if it's behind the counter or on the safe or something like that, then you could argue that those fingerprints shouldn't be there. But if it's just inside the store, it's going to be tough because just like DNA, fingerprints don't have per se a timestamp to them. You can't always say when they were deposited at a scene. And even if you could, you don't have an exact time frame for the murder. So it's 
again, any evidence there is is not going to be super helpful in identifying a suspect or putting them at the scene because they could have had reason to be there. But a list of suspects or possible witnesses could be formed by the checkout system. And this is going to be which accounts were used to rent movies that evening, and this is going to have a timestamp, as well as which movies were dropped off, although the latter would be harder to lock into a time frame. And the way this worked back in the 90s in most cases was there'd be one of these one-way drop boxes located on the outside of these stores. So you'd walk up and it's kind of like a, a bank deposit where you could open the door, drop something in and shut the door, and then it would drop further into another bin inside the building, but you couldn't open the drop box and reach in and grab anything inside. It was part of a, a two-part system, the deposit and then dropping into another system. Uh, that would then secure the items inside the store. And as long as you dropped off your movie within the time frame that you needed to return it by, or the next, that it would be, as long as it was found in the Dropbox the next day, you wouldn't be charged a late fee. But there wasn't, in almost all cases, any way to verify when that drop occurred unless you could go back and say the last time this bin was emptied out was 7 p.m. So anything in this bin would have been dropped between 7 p.m. and when the store was shut down as a crime scene. So then you'd have at least you could go back and look at which one videos were returned, who had open accounts that had rented that video, go talk to them, find out did you return this video on the night of November 15th. I Yes, I did. What time did you return it? See if that matches up. See if they saw anything at the time. Was any, you know, was anybody in the store? Did you see Miranda? Was she okay? And you could kind of work a timeline off of that, but it would be, again, that that's what police are likely doing at this point. The investigators trying to see if they can lock in the last time somebody saw Miranda okay and if there's anybody else in the store that they can't account for and eventually see if they can identify that person. The only identifying information that likely could have been used as evidence if it wasn't in one of those non-public places in the store is anything found on Miranda's body and this is especially if sexual assault was involved and eventually again it wasn't mentioned originally when I was doing the research, so I assumed that it probably wasn't. And if not, you could still do things like fingernail clippings or look for foreign blood on her clothing or skin. And nowadays, they can even look for touch DNA uh, if you think, you know, especially in cases of manual strangulation or something like that. But when you have that up close and personal nature of a knife attack, there's a better chance that as the person's fighting for their life, that you know, they gouge the other person with their fingernails or somehow get some way to get that DNA under their fingernails. Uh, it's not the same as if somebody is shot. And as we talked about in the last episode, the episode before, if you've got no stippling on the gunshot wound, you and it looks like it happened from three to six feet away, whatever it might be, or, or further, uh, the chances of finding the suspect's DNA on your victim is pretty pretty slim, but the chance of finding your suspect's DNA on a person in a knife attack is is much higher. And what was released after the fact was that Miranda had been attacked in the store, sustained stab wounds to her upper torso and neck, and money was missing from the register. And then there was likely the holdback information that was not released to the public, and in this case it would pay off in the long run. And several suspects were looked at in the beginning of the investigation everyone from the owner of the movie store to customers that stopped by that day. And I'm sure any sex offenders or violent criminals in the area would also be looked into for their possible involvement. It would be said later that over 700 people were interviewed during the investigation, but no solid leads developed. And there were confessions and rumored suspects over the years. In 2000, a man killed in a police shootout in Glendive, Montana, was rumored to have confessed to Miranda's murder before he was killed, but no solid link could be established. And in 2012, the case was assigned to the Billings, Montana Cold Case Unit for a fresh look. And while following up on old leads, one person dropped a name of someone who had once sat on the suspect list. 
A woman told investigators that at the time of the murders, she was married to a man and her stepson lived in Laurel and was in her eyes an extremely violent person. Her stepson at the time was then 18-year-old Zach O'Neill. Zach lived with his mother and stepfather in Laurel at the time and had been interviewed by investigators after the murder. On the evening of the murder, his stepfather's account was used to rent five movies and the person renting the movies checked those out with Miranda. And Zach was found to be the person who checked out the movies, but it had occurred earlier in the evening and when officers talked to Zach, he denied any knowledge of the murder and was cleared as a suspect. Now it's unknown if investigators talked to Zach during the 2012 cold case investigation, but in 2017, Zach walked into the Yellowstone County Sheriff's Office and confessed to killing Miranda. Investigators did not take him seriously at first because he was one of several people to confess to the crime and several had confessed during the previous years and all had found to be false confessions. Zach was also coming off of a drug high when he confessed and was told to come back when he was sober. Zach did come back two days later when he was sober and again investigators were suspicious of his confession at first. But the longer investigators let Zach talk, the more they became convinced that he might actually be responsible for the murders. He had been ruled out as a suspect early on because rental information showed he had been in the movie store earlier that evening during a time Miranda was known to be alive and well and had completed a five movie rental transaction with her. There had been several other transactions after this and therefore he was looked at and then ruled out as a suspect. What investigators in 1998 didn't know was that Zack returned to the movie store that evening. One of the five movies he had rented that evening was for himself. The other four were for his mother. His mother saw the five movies and realized the movie Zack had rented for himself was an adult film, and she told him he had to return it. Filled with anger, Zack drove back to the movie store to return the adult film, and on the way he decided to rob the store. Zack stated in 1998 he was in the middle of a meth addiction and had been committing burglaries and thefts to fund his meth habit. He admitted that he had smoked meth earlier that day, and he knew the lone worker at the store was an easy target for robbery. And we just have to go back to the Matthew Shepard case. It's kind of roughly the same area of the country. It, that was in Wyoming, but uh, an area very similar to this uh, area of of Montana and I, I guess I didn't realize it because I was in high school I was almost graduated I graduated in 99 but this is happening in 98 I was not one of those people to be involved in the the drug scene but and I wasn't in law enforcement yet so I guess I didn't realize how just big the meth epidemic was at that time i mean looking back now covering some of these cases i, I realize especially in these small town rural america this meth addiction stuff was just devastating and, and again we, like i said we saw it in the matthew shepherd case uh, we saw it, we've seen it in a couple other cases and then we see it in this case where these oftentimes high school dropout drug addict no future type males that between 16 and 20 years old they get hooked on a drug and they don't have a means for funding it through like a job or anything like that so they revert to a life of crime they revert to robberies that ultimately escalate to the point that they end up killing somebody uh, to just to get enough money to to get their next hit of, of the drug or whatever it might be and again it just it seems to be pervasive in in this part of the country in 1998 or around that time frame as recovering cases. And Zach would say upon arriving at the store, he waited for all the other customers to leave. He did not return the adult films. There was no record of him being in the store a second time. He said he then pulled a gun on Miranda and grabbed cash from the register and ordered her to the back room. He tied her up with tape and then he realized he needed to silence Miranda because she knew who he was and he had just rented from her a couple hours earlier and she could point police right to his mother's house. So he attacked Miranda with a knife, overpowering her and stabbing her several times. He tried to cut her carotid artery in her neck, but his knife was dull and this resulted in more of a ripping of her neck than a clean cut. 
Zach recalled Miranda gurgling on her own blood, and then he thought he heard a customer coming in the store, so he fled out the back. Some of the details that he gave, including using the tape to bind her and the fact he ran out the back door, was never released to the public. He told investigators the gun he used in the attack, but never fired, was a 22 caliber semi-auto handgun that he later sold in Spokane, Washington for drugs. Zach admitted to disposing of the knife he used while on a hunting trip with his stepfather near Jordan, Montana. It's unknown if original investigators talked to Zach's mom that evening, and if they didn't, that's a failure on them. But if they did, it's possible she neglected to tell them about Zach's return trip to the store on purpose or on accident. Investigators knowing Zach returned to the store angry and without actually doing the return of the adult film during the timeline when Miranda was believed to have been attacked would have been a solid lead. It was later reported that Zach's stepfather did tell a detective about his stepson's trip back to the store, but it appears nothing was done with that information. And it's always dangerous in a case like this to look back on the entire investigation. I don't know, or I guess we don't know if this is true that Zach's stepfather did tell a detective because in my mind, if I'm trying to rule somebody out as a suspect and you've got this Zach and I have to imagine he's not of the most upstanding character at this point in his life if he's on meth and and committing all these crimes. And I don't know if police knew he was or not, but still, he fits your suspect profile. This definitely looks like a unorganized robbery style killing likely done by somebody who has issues with losing control or whatever it might be he's got anger issues and everything's kind of lining up with with zach and yes i understand that on record you had him there well before the murder and miranda was fine after he left but if you later learn that he returned to that store and the only reason he returned was to return this adult film that his mother didn't want him to to watch and he doesn't actually follow through with the return. There's no record of, of him doing this return. Because I'm assuming at the video store, if you returned a movie within a certain amount of time, you could get your money back uh, with the idea that you didn't watch it or, or, or you didn't like it or something along those lines. But there would have been something in the system saying this movie no longer is part of this rental agreement that we had with under Zach's stepfather's account. And so if you find out that he never returned the film, well, then what did he do? Did he drive back to the store? If he did, what time? Did anybody see him there? You know, he said he waited for customers to leave. Was he parked in, in his car and waited till everybody left? Would somebody have seen his vehicle? Again, th- this lead, in my mind, should have been followed up a lot more in 1998 if it's true that investigators were aware that Zach returned. But... We can't fully go off what Zach's stepfather said. Maybe he said something that was just not as direct, that investigators didn't understand exactly what he was saying. Uh, And again, the interview, maybe they never even interviewed Zach's mother for her to be able to say, yes, Zach rented a movie from there, but I made him return it. Or maybe she covered for him we don't know there's there's definitely parts to this investigation we're not getting the full story on but as investigators are listening to zach they're again that hold back information there's likely going to be blood on this back door which they know the suspect fled out the back door was not something they told the public because until he confessed even i didn't know whether the the robbery occurred on the way you know, right as he walked into the store, or could he have tied her up, attacked her, and then grabbed cash on the way out? Uh, well, police are pretty sure, based on evidence of the crime scene, that it was grab the cash first, force Miranda to the back, tie her up, attack her, and then leave out the back door. And this is also why they believe you know the attack was done so haphazardly, and there was no sexual assault because I think they act- they probably figured that the suspect may have been interrupted but investigators felt that zach divulged enough information only known to the killer to consider it a reliable confession but zach wasn't done confessing to just one crime he felt he needed to clear his conscience and he would end up confessing to several other crimes including three sexual assaults and one that was nearly identical to miranda's attack 
Zach stated that on September 5, 1998, he attacked a newspaper delivery woman and sexually assaulted her. Afraid of being identified by her, he slit her throat, and the victim pretended to be dead until Zach left. She was then able to summon help and survived her terrible ordeal. Investigators were able to get DNA from that assault, but until Zach's confession had not linked the crime to anyone. Investigators obtained a search warrant for Zach's DNA after his 2017 confession, and his profile matched the profile from the unsolved 1998 sexual assault and attempted homicide that he had confessed his involvement. Zach admitted to a couple more sexual assaults after 1998, but the only known victim of those assaults that could be linked to Zach via DNA had passed away in 2013. When asked why Zach was confessing to the crimes, he stated that his stepbrother had been killed in a fire in 2013, and recently the suspects had been brought to justice, and he felt Miranda's family deserved justice for what he had done. It took investigators and prosecutors two years to charge Zach, a time period that drew criticism from many who had already waited justice for almost 20 years, and attempts to justify the wait included ensuring the confession was real and the fact that during the time Zach was awaiting charges, he was being incarcerated in Washington State on unrelated charges and wasn't set to be released until 2024. So I, I get, I understand where the family's coming from on this. They've been waiting 20 years for somebody to be brought to justice and for them to get more answers about what happened to Miranda, why she was killed. And this is aggravating to know that police are so close to to getting those answers, so close to bringing charges against somebody and there being a, their plea agreement or a trial. And just every day you wake up hoping to hear that this guy is going to be arrested and it takes two years. And so from the, from the surviving uh, family member standpoint and the victim of this terrible sexual assault in 1998, uh, I can't imagine how difficult this would be to sit there and wait. But from law enforcement and the prosecution side, they want to make sure they have a solid as solid of a case as they can before they bring charges because again you only get to take one shot at people for the most part uh double jeopardy prevents you from if you screw up and they somehow get acquitted from you putting them on trial again so you want to make sure the case is as solid as possible and in this case you're not worried about zach running out there and committing more crimes because he's as right after he's confessed to these crimes i don't know if he went out to washington state and confessed to more crimes and they locked him up right away but he was put into prison in washington state shortly after this confession and he wasn't set to be released until 2024 so it wasn't like they had you know a ticking clock to bring charges on this guy and they wanted to do it right so it's it's that balance between bringing justice as quickly as possible but also doing it right so again I, I don't blame the family for being upset with how long it took it but at the same time i understand where the prosecution investigators are coming from especially on a case that had so many false confessions there isn't any direct evidence that's going to link him to the crime so if he all of a sudden decides you know what, I made up that entire confession or somebody told me what they did, it wasn't me, and I'm not going to tell you who the person was that told me all this stuff. Without any direct evidence, they don't have the murder weapons, they don't have his DNA at the scene, they don't have anything to link him directly to the crime. They were going to spend two years to build the case, talk to people again a second time, find out and it said during the investigation they they verified where he parked his vehicle and they must have talked to somebody who saw the vehicle parked there. They verified a, a ton of information from his confession and all of that just takes time. So eventually though, it, they did charge uh, Zach with the homicide of Miranda Fenner, attempted homicide and sexual assault for his attack on September 5th of 1998. Uh, originally, he pled not or pled not guilty, which obviously is strange considering he was the one that did the confession. But maybe it was just something his lawyers told him to do while they worked out a, a better plea agreement for him, because eventually they would reach a plea agreement for the charges. So he pled guilty on July twenty second, twenty nineteen, on all charges, uh, except they didn't charge him with the the other sexual assault. 
that he admitted to because the victim had passed away and they already had him for the homicide attempted homicide and the other sexual assault and they the way that it ends up being charged i don't think it would have made a difference in the end uh at least in terms of punishment so during sentencing on august 23rd 2019 miranda's family had a chance to speak her father told zach that if he was the judge zach would be hanged to death mike fenner also told zach that god will deliver justice and michael would travel to hell just to see zach suffering and this is makes me think that the family probably was also upset about the plea agreement and i'm sure the prosecution probably explained to them that hey if he changes his mind in the middle of the trial and decides you know he wants to recant his confession we don't have him with any direct evidence so he could actually beat a, a homicide charge against your daughter so would you rather he take the homicide plea agreement and we get a confess you know get to keep the confession in and we get to put him away for some time for your daughter's murder or do you want this thing to potentially go to trial and have him not face justice for it and so i'm sure it was difficult for the family and maybe they did agree to the plea agreement in the end and they were just speaking their mind at this trial but it's pretty clear from the sentencing that mike would have preferred that zach be put to death now, as a part of the plea agreement, Zach was sentenced to three life sentences to run concurrent, which means he'll be eligible for parole in 2049, but due to his high-risk status, he will likely will not be paroled as he is deemed not able to be rehabilitated. And so when you have these criminals, violent offenders, sexual offenders, they get ranked or given a level based on how likely it is that they are going to reoffend and how likely it is that rehabilitation could work for them and just based on zach's crimes that he pled guilty to and the the terrible nature of how he killed miranda and tried to kill this this other woman that he sexually assaulted uh, the state deemed him you know the highest risk possible for for reoffending and basically stated no matter how long he sits in prison he'll never be rehabilitated he'll never be safe to be released so it does seem kind of strange i'm sure it was part of the plea agreement that he had a chance to see the outside world again which is why these life sentences are running concurrent which is why he's eligible for parole at some point he did not you know get sentenced to life without parole or three consecutive life sentences uh, but my guess is that that was part of the plea agreement but it's unlikely he's going to go before any parole board that's going to read that he's a level three high risk and they're going to they're going to release him and he is serving his time in a montana correctional facility but that is the case of miranda fenner thank you guys for listening stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to rate me at true blue crime productions at gmail.com you can also find me at true blue crime productions on facebook and support me via patreon at true blue crime productions that's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.